Now I hope we have another blessing as we open up God's Word today and uh, seek to hear from Him particularly about how to better lead and shepherd and care for and communicate in our homes. Now, but to get us started, I want you to help me finish this phrase. It's a phrase you've all heard. You probably know it. It goes, you are what you eat, right? You've heard that phrase before. There's a ton of truth that is rooted in it. In the sense that what you ingest in your body has great impact on the health of your body. And it is absolutely true that in a very literal way, your physical body is made up of the things that you consume, the things that you ingest, the things that you eat. And so you consume good things, you get a good body. You consume unhealthy things, you get an unhealthy body. And we're well aware of this today. In fact, American society, I think, has kind of a growing health consciousness about it. You've seen in the recent decade or so kind of a movement away from McDonald's towards Subway. Or supersized meals, not so much, and now we have snack size offerings. Or the New York Times is, you know, full of bestseller, best-selling books on nutrition and dieting. So you have the popular series, Eat This, Not That. Uh, which has sold over 8 million copies in less than a decade. And you have the rise of Whole Foods and the whole organic food industry. It's taken America by storm. And in fact, I have to tell you, this whole organic thing, it's caused a little bit of tension in my own household. You see, my wife, Jessica, she loves this whole concept of eating organic, okay? And I'm a little bit more skeptical. I'm a little more like kind of scientific, thinking, okay, it's cost this much more, does that really have that much more of a health payoff to it? And, and, you know, I have a hard time discerning between what's the marketing propaganda or what I consider like the emotional nobility of the whole farm-to-table kind of stuff from the real scientific fact of how much does this organic food like actually benefit us. I'm sure it benefits us some, I'm confident of that. But Jessica's like super into this organic thing and you know, here I am sitting on the couch drinking my diet soft drink and eating my Swedish fish. (laughs) Which are probably like the antithesis of chemically based food is what all that stuff is. But it's good for us to be concerned about these things, right? Because you literally are what you ingest. It's so much of the health of your body is determined by the health of the things that you put into it. And we see this very same principle in our text today, which is Ephesians chapter 4. The focus here is not so much on our diet and the things that we bring into our physical body, but more the focus is on our behavior and our communication, and the types of things that we bring into our relationships, the things we bring into our church, the things we bring into our homes. And the health of your home is so comprised and determined by the attitudes and the actions and the way of speaking that you bring into it, just like the health of our church is so determined by the attitudes and the actions and the communication we have that is on display here. So just as your diet has a massive impact upon the health of your body, your conduct And way of interacting has an incredible impact on the health of our church, the health of your family, your household, your marriage, your children. And so do you want a healthy and happy home? Well, bring good things into it. You want a healthy and happy church? Let's bring some good things into it. Do this and not that. Bring this in and not that. That's the fundamental premise of our text today, which begins in verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 4. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verse 25 and following. But to kind of set the table, in the context just immediately prior, Paul is talking about, uh, and he's exhorting his readers to put off certain things and to put on other things. In other words, they are to put off the patterns and the lifestyle and the values and the priorities of the person they were before coming to faith in Christ. 
Before believing in him, they had certain uh, things that were conditioned in them by the world that was, were not godly. And so Paul is exhorting his readers, put, get, get those things away. Put them off. Don't bring them in to your life anymore. Instead, now put on God's character and God's virtues and God's attributes. Put on Christ's likeness. Put on to yourself uh, behavior and values so that you are a picture of Christ to the world. So that you have a self that is righteous and a self that is holy. And this concept of putting off and putting on is introduced uh, to us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. And now here in verse 25, Paul gets very specific about some things that we are to be careful not to put on, things that we are to get rid of, and things that we are to put on and bring into our lives, conduct that we're supposed to embrace, things that we're supposed to shun, and things that we're supposed to uh, bring into our homes, our lives, our relationships. And while these instructions here, they're largely written for the church as a whole, uh, given our current series that we're in right now, basically on the relationships within the family, I'm going to apply, apply this passage a lot just to individual families, individual relationships, marriage, etc. And we're going to see as we work through it five contrasts for how family members ought to relate to one another, what I'm calling really five rules for family conduct, five essential ways of interacting and communicating that we must bring into our homes and we must bring into our families. So five rules for a healthy family. And most of these rules, they involve some form of communication. Communication is absolutely critical to a healthy marriage, healthy family, healthy home, isn't it? When, when, we, when, when bad communication happens, there is what? There's misunderstanding. There's hurt feelings. There's sometimes family breakdown and disappointment and pain. But when we communicate well, in a way that God desires, in a way that God lays out for us, incredible blessings can come. And I can think about my own life, my own marriage, my own household, my family. When there's poor communication, communication that is unclear or unwise or perhaps unkind or even untrue, that often causes relational struggle within my family. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, right? Just to take an easy example, I have three kids. They're ages nine, seven, and four. They're kind of in the thick of, especially the older ones, and the elementary age years there. And they're at that time that they can be so much fun. They can play together so well some of the time. But at other points of the time, they're like at each, other, at each other's throats. And they're fighting, and they're yelling, and they're screaming, and they're complaining, and they're tattling, and they're lying, and they're whining, communicating in a way that is not helpful communicating in a way that, conducting themselves in a way that makes nobody happy, bringing attitudes and actions and speech into our home that doesn't make it a happy place. And so healthy, God-honoring communication, conduct is critical to having a healthy family. You're going to see this communication theme quite well as we work through this text. So let's consider now five rules for family, for household conduct. And they begin in Verse 25 of Ephesians 4, where we see there, the text says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So you see the first contrast or rule for family uh, conduct here, it centers on communication. Put away falsehood and let each of you speak the truth. Here's a command not to lie, but to tell the truth. And we're instructed to put off falsehood, which includes, you know, outright lies, saying things just very plainly that are not propositionally true, just blatant lies. But it's actually more inclusive than that. This involves all falsehoods. It involves all matters of deceit or untruthfulness. 
You see, sometimes you can say something which is maybe factually correct, but in saying it, you can actually give an impression that is not true, right? By not really volunteering all the information or saying it in a way that might create a false impression. So, for example, when my wife is out for the evening and then she comes home and she says, hey, what'd you do tonight? I was home by myself. And I say, well, you know, I kind of cleaned up a little and I did some emailing, some work. That may be factually true. But what I didn't mention is that I cleaned up maybe for 15 minutes and I kind of scanned through my email and sent one quick reply. And then for about two hours, I sat in front of the TV eating a big bowl of ice cream, munching on my non-organic diet soda. Right? I sat a truthful response, but it created an image and a perception that wasn't at all true to the reality of my experience that evening. I didn't technically lie, but I certainly created a false impression. And creating a false impression, even if you're not saying something that's factually, even if you're saying something that's all factually true, is part of what's in view here by put away falsehood. Now, how much do these things happen in our homes or in our families? Maybe sometimes we outright lie to each other. That certainly might happen. But perhaps more commonly, you selectively share information that just creates a false impression. And you feel good about not actually lying, but you know that someone has a correct inter- incorrect interpretation about a certain reality. That's spreading falsehood. And instead of doing these things, we are to, the text says, speak truthfully to one another, which me- leads me then to the first rule of family conduct, which is this. Be honest, not deceptive. Be honest, not deceptive. Now, that, that seems really easy, doesn't it? Seems really easy. I mean, just, just tell the truth, right? But how many homes and how many families have been totally destroyed by a lack of honesty? When she finds out that he's been living a secret life, or he discovers that she has emotionally attached herself to somebody else, or perhaps when we hide our true feelings for a long time and we bury them deep down inside, and inside resentment and bitterness grow because we never get around to speaking how we feel. We never get around to communicating and just being honest and truthful about what's going on inside and how we think about this thing or that thing. We think about how our marriage is making us feel or the burdens that we're carrying. We never hash it out. We never communicate. We're never fully honest. And so the command here, it seems so simple, but it is so very hard. Being honest means not engaging in any sort of falsehood, not creating any false impression, not uh, just being forthright and truthful in our communication, making sure that those in our household understand who we are, where we're coming from. And like so many of the rules, household rules we'll see in this passage, the text also provides a clear reason why we need to relate and communicate in this way. So at the end of verse 25, it says, for we are members of one another. We're all part of the body of Christ, and, and your family members, you're all part of a household. And like it or not, you're all interdependent, you're all interconnected. And how foolish would it be if one part of your body started lying and deceiving another part of your body? So like you're driving in your car, going down the road, and your eyes see an approaching red light, but they fail to communicate to your feet, hey, we need to stop here. Or you're doing a home, pro- a home improvement project or whatever, and you're working on a hammer, and you bang your thumb with a hammer. Now, how foolish would it be for that thumb to not register that pain to the rest of your body and just let it keep getting beat on? That would be ridiculous. Your body wouldn't do that. That would be uh, destructive to itself. 
would uh, be bringing pain and harm to the rest of the body. And so likewise, falsehood and deception in our homes, it's a destructive force. We're all interconnected. We're all interdependent. And even the littlest white lies, you know what those little white lies do? They erode trust. And when trust is eroded, the health, trust is such a healthy, important, vital foundation of all relationships. And when trust is in question, every aspect of a relationship begins to suffer. So lying and deceit, it destroys family relationships. It do, it erodes them. But in contrast, truthfulness, honesty, forthrightness, it solidifies relationships. It builds trust. So let us speak truthfully to one another because the health of your home, the health of your marriage, it is so determined by the truth that you bring in it. The health of your uh, marital relationship, so determined by the honesty that you bring into it. So be honest, not deceptive. It's counterproductive for us to act in any other way. And that's the first rule for household conduct. Be honest, not deceptive. And the next is found in verses 26 and 27 when we see there. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So here now the focus moves from uh, lying to anger. Be angry and do not sin, the text says. Notice the text doesn't say don't be angry. It says don't sin in your anger. And that distinction is significant because, you see, there is such a thing as righteous anger. We can be angry about certain things, and that's okay. We can be angry about injustice, like when we see people injuring one, injuring one another, or we look out the world, we see horrific practices like genocide or abortion. We can be angry. We ought to be angry about those things. We can be angry when we're betrayed, when we are mistreated, like when a husband cheats on a wife. Or a child disrespects their parents. Or someone cheats, cheats us, robs us, abuses us. It's okay to be angry at those sins. I mean, God himself gets angry, right? We see that certainly in the Bible. Jesus modeled anger himself, righteous anger, when he went in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers. He made a big scene doing that. So not all anger is sinful. But there is certainly some anger that is sinful, and particularly anger that is rooted in our own selfishness, in our own pride, self-centeredness. So things like, I get it, I'm angry because that person won that award instead of me. Or I'm, a, I, I'm mad because my husband always gets to travel and go to far off places for his job and I'm always stuck home with the kids. Or I'm mad because my parents didn't share the inheritance with me like I thought that they should. You see, some anger is clearly sinful. Some, some is justified. But even justified anger can be very harmful because anger, when it's not resolved, it almost always turns into resentment. See, anger is like this little spark that can exist. And if it isn't extinguished, you know what that does is it turns into, it turns into a cancer, a cancer of resentment that just kind of flows in through our entire being. And if anger turns into resentment, that can be a cancer that can completely ravish a home. And an attitude of resentment is a wedge that divides families. It causes divorce. It splits and destroys churches. It breaks hearts. And in light of this, because of this, Paul offers a second rule for household conduct, which we see 26, 27. I would summarize it as be reconciling, not resenting. Be reconciling, not resenting. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, he says. Essentially, this is a command for us to resolve our anger, to reconcile our conflicts, to put them to bed, to keep short accounts, to not let anger fester and grow and turn into deep 
Resentment, because attitudes of resentment, they destroy our homes and our families. And doing this, resolving our anger to keeping short accounts, to offering reconciliation, it begins first with a a posture in our own hearts, right? When we settle in our own hearts, I'm going to forgive that person. I'm going to uh, look past that offense that they have done to me. That, that, that settling in your own heart to do that. But there is also a relational matter that requires communication where the words, will you forgive me, are said. And the words, I forgive you, are offered in response. And those of you who are married, I'd be willing to bet you've probably had a few conflicts with your spouse, right? Maybe just a couple conflicts, maybe a couple big conflicts. And those kind of conflicts, they, they typically just don't disappear on their own, do they? They always require some kind of communication to really fully resolve those conflicts. And so, uh, when Jessica and I, for example, are in this kind of testy sort of place, and it's time for us to go to bed, and we have these unresolved things, sometimes it's hard just to lay next to that person, right? And you know what I've discovered? I've discovered that just trying to sleep off that conflict, it, it doesn't work. As much as I'd want, like to just kind of sleep it off, it doesn't work. Especially when I'm the one who's in the wrong, which is probably true like 90% of the time. Because I pretty much married an awesome woman who's perfect in every way, and good luck to her enduring marriage with me. But there's times that I've woken up after Jessica and I have had a contentious little spat the night before, and I've just wanted us to forget about that thing and move on and pretend like everything is happy and didn't even happen. And, and she's like, no, we're still in a fight. Like, we haven't resolved this yet. We haven't communicated about this yet. We really haven't reconciled the tension yet. And why does she feel that way? Because full reconciliation requires communication. Don't let the sun go down in your anger is essentially a command for us to keep short accounts. When we settle in our own hearts, we're going to just kind of let that go and forgive people of these grievances. But it's also a commitment that we're going to communicate and reconcile any tensions and resolve any conflicts that we might have. And notice the warning that this verse has too in verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. You see, when we hold on to our anger and we don't reconcile, the devil loves that. He loves to take our anger and turn it into resentment. And then he uses that resentment to wreck our homes and destroy our relationships. The enemy loves to see resentment, but God loves to see forgiveness and grace and mercy. That is, after all, keeping with their fundamental natures. The devil at his core harbors great resentment towards God and towards Christ. He lives in that, and he wants people to live in that too. But Jesus offers us incredible grace and forgiveness and mercy and patience. Just like that grace and mercy has been offered to us, so too should we extend that to others, especially those who are in our own family. Be reconciling, not resenting. Bring expressions of forgiveness into your home. That's the second rule of family conduct. Doing this is critical for having a happy and healthy home. Be reconciling, not resenting. Third rule now is found in verse 28. We read there, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And like the previous verses, the command here is pretty straightforward. Don't be a thief. Don't steal. Work for a living. And in that work, make sure it's honest. Make sure it's rooted in integrity. 
And then be ready to be generous with the resources that you acquire. Be ready to share with anyone who is in need, the text says. Which means we ought to be free to help one another as we look around and we see needs in our community. And this is why I'm so thankful for our benevolence ministry here at Bethel where we have resources that we give out to people in our community and in our church, certainly, who are in need. And I'm so thankful for those of you here who faithfully contribute to that. That's one way that you apply this text, that we are sharing with anyone who is in need. So hopefully all of us here, we're making an honest living, we're sharing our resources as we can with those around us who are in need. That's what this verse is calling us to do. But what's the relevance for this particular text for our homes, for our families? I think it's basically this. Everybody who is in a home who is able to do so needs to make an honest contribution. There shouldn't be any able-bodied freeloaders in our homes. We all ought to be giving to one another and not just taking. So if he goes out and works all day at the job site, working hard for the family, she better not just be sitting at home watching soap operas, eating bonbons all day. Or he comes home from work, you better not think now he's entitled just to chill out on the couch and watch sports instead of contributing to the health of the family, taking care of the kids, maintaining the home, right? We're all doing our fair share. We're all helping. We're all giving to one another. Or to summarize it with this rule, I would say it this way. Be contributing, not taking. Be contributing, not taking. And this principle, this principle is why in my household we have very clear expectations about what our kids need to do. And, and so, for example, we have very clear chores all laid out. These are the chores that you need to do. And you know what? They don't get paid for a lot of them. They don't get allowance or something for doing a lot of the things they need to do. They're just expected to do it. Now, there are some things that they do where we do give them allowance or some payment just to help them learn the value of work, and and they do get compensated for that. But there's a lot of things that they're expected to do. They're standard chores, making their bed, picking up their room, cleaning up around the house, just tidying things up. They don't get paid for that. That's just an expectation of being part of our household. That expectation, I think, should be true to a degree for all young children. And in this day and age, I believe it needs to be true for young adults as well. How many kids turn 18 but don't become dependent of mom and dad for years and years? It's not uncommon to find today a 25-year-old living at home, freeloading off mom and dad, chilling in the basement, doing little to contribute to the household, the parents empowering that behavior, allowing their son or daughter to live a life with an attitude of entitlement towards their parents. Listen, if my kids turn 21 and they're still living at home, they are paying rent. They are going to have clear responsibilities around the house, no matter how old they are. Because I want to raise children who, if they're in my home, they're contributors, not takers. And I want to raise kids who even go a step beyond that, as this verse says, who are givers and who are generous. And so here's one way we do that in the Lagos household. Our kids, you know, they have three piggy banks. So when they receive some money from doing extra chores or from gifts or whatever, uh, some of that money goes into their spend bank, and that's money they can spend for themselves. Some of it goes into their save bank, and that's money that's reserved for some future need down the road. And some of the money goes into the give bank, at least 10%. And that's resources then that they bring to the church to demonstrate a life of giving, to not be a taker, but a contributor. So let's do as the text says here. Make sure everyone in our home and our household is doing their fair share. Don't let anyone in your home be a freeloader, but cultivate instead a spirit of generosity. We're all giving and supporting, 
sharing with one another. Bring that kind of culture into your home, that we're all givers, that we're all contributors to one another. Do that, and your home will be a better place. Not taking, but giving. Now, that sounds very healthy, doesn't it? Be contributing, not taking. That's the third rule for family conduct. Moving on through the text, we see our fourth rule. In verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, the emphasis is on communication here, and the prohibition is clear. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Translations handle the Greek behind here differently. Some say foul language, others say unwholesome talk, corrupt conversation. The word, it literally means putrid or rotten. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe trees that have decayed or fruit that has spoiled. It is unwholesome, corrupt, unpleasant stuff. So corrupting talk can include all sorts of things like profanity and vulgarity, lewd and crass words, locker room kind of talk, abusive language, slander, even more subtle types of communication that that is injurious, like gossip or unkind sarcasm or things that are said that delight in a person's failure or weakness. And in summary, this kind of communication is just not helpful. It's, it's, const- it's not constructive. It's destructive. It's not, it's not supportive. It's abusive. It's not encouraging. It's discouraging. And does that kind of talk happen in our families, in our homes, either about one another who's there or maybe people who aren't there? Absolutely. Absolutely it does. Sometimes it does in brash and offensive ways when we literally are yelling and screaming and swearing at one another, flying off the handle, losing our cool. That happens. But often it's more subtle. Little comments that just kind of cut somebody down. Comments that ridicule or joke in an unkind way. Sarcastic remarks that are just meant as a little jab, a little insult. Things said that condescend. And all those things are the opposite of what the text calls us here to do. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but rather that which is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So instead of this unhelpful talk, we are to say things that build each other up. They're appropriate for the setting that demonstrate grace to others. In a word, we are to say things that are edifying. Which leads me to summarize this fourth rule of family conduct in this way. Be edifying, not condescending. Be edifying, not condescending. Because words have incredible power, don't they? They have incredible power. It's often said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt them, hurt me. That quote is total garbage. Total garbage. Sometimes there is nothing more hurtful or damaging than words. We hear thousands of words spoken every day, most of which we just dismiss as kind of neutral conversation, communication. But some words have incredible power to stick with us for a very, very long time. And words that are condescending fit that category. Things like saying like, can't you do better? That was a terrible effort. You're good for nothing. I can't stand you right now. You never do anything right. You are such a disappointment. Now, are those painful words? Absolutely they are. 
because they are attacking words, condescending words, words of judgment that demean our very person. But in contrast, words have the power to be incredibly uplifting and full of encouragement. Things like, you did fantastic today. That thing you did was outstanding. No one could have done it any better. I, I trust you to make that decision. You're growing so much in this area. You are going to do incredible things with your life. I believe in you. I am so very proud of you. Now, who wants to hear words like that spoken over them? We all do, right? They're so edifying. They build us up. They put wind in our sails to soar through any adversity. And married people, what kind of words are you saying to your spouse? Do you demean and condescend them? Do your words uplift them, inspire them, encourage them, build them up, Or in your communication, is there just a lot of nagging, a lot of constant criticism? Or do you celebrate, truly celebrate the goodness of your spouse with words, often even sometimes in just over-the-top sort of ways? Listen, sometimes it is okay to just exaggerate a bit with your words and make your spouse just feel totally uplifted. To say some things that are just totally over, to- over the top, like, that was the absolute best meal I have ever had in my entire life. Or you have never, ever looked more beautiful than you look right now. I have never seen you work harder for our family. No one could possibly be a better parent or a lover than you. You know, it's actually biblical to exaggerate a bit in encouraging particularly our spouse. Just read the Song of Solomon. In that book, which is a love letter, basically, from a betrothed to his beloved, the author just exaggerates all over the place about the beauty and the majesty and his beloved, just words that just heaping encouragement and over-the-top expressions of delight. Just incredibly encouraging words, words that certainly would have made his beloved blush. So when was the last time you embarrassed your spouse with kind words of encouragement? Or parents, what kind of hope and vision are you speaking into your children's lives? This is so critical. Are you speaking hopes and dreams and visions into the life of your children? No matter what age they are? For young children, saying things like, I know you're going to grow up to be something special. You are a beautiful little girl. You're a handsome little boy. You were so very sweet and kind today. I'm so happy with the way that you're growing up. You are so special to me. You are going to do something truly great with your life. God is going to be honored in you. Little children need that kind of encouragement. They need that kind of vision spoken over them. And truthfully, older children, grown children, adult children need need to hear those things as well. They need to hear, I believe in you. What you are doing is so incredibly important. I could have never done it that well myself. You've done it better than I ever could have. I am so very proud of you.
And do you want to hear words like that spoken over you? You bet you do. We all do. And parents, bless your children with spoken words like this. Words of affirmation. Words of encouragement. Words of vision. Words of hope. Bless your spouse with words like this. Say those all-important three words all the time. I love you, but maybe get more specific with it. I love you because you are beautiful. I love you because you work hard. I love you because you're growing in character. I love you because you serve others with gladness. I love you because you are so generous to people. I love you because you just mean the world to me. Words that edify. Bring some of those kind of words into your relationships, into your family, your marriage, your home, and it will be utterly transformative to it. But bring words of condescension and words of judgment and the quality of your home and your marriage and your parenting will crumble. Be edifying, not condescending. That's the fourth rule for household conduct we see here. And the fifth then is found in verses 31 and 32. Where the text says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now here is a pretty long list. There's six things we're supposed to put off in this list. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. And then there's three things that we're supposed to put on. Kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. It's a strong contrast that's here. And the negative items, what they do is they carry all, they all carry with them this sense of um, hostility and mean-spiritedness, of anger, of explosiveness. Perhaps kind of like this person is a ticking time bomb. You never really quite know when, what's going to set them off. Or, or maybe there's somebody who's much more just kind of passive-aggressive, and they don't like kind of fly off the handle much, but they have a very critical spirit. They're not much fun to be around. You feel that you're trying to manipulate and scheme things. And so there's very kind of negative description here that, that describes a very combative person or a person who thinks that they're always right, and they let other people know it. In contrast, there's three positive descriptions that are really beautiful attributes and associated with love. So there's kindness, which basically means goodness and generosity expressed to others through action. There's tenderheartedness, which can be translated uh, actually compassion. It really refers to the, kind of that emotional, deep-seat connection that you have with people who are suffering, kind of that ability that you have to empathize with people who are going in a hard way and how you can be gentle in approaching people. It's tenderheartedness. And forgiveness, and you know what this is, extending patience and mercy and grace to people, not holding a grudge but letting things go, or actually being intentional and helping to free people of guilt, that person who's offended you or wronged you or disappointed you, helping them be free of the guilt that they feel from that, being gracious. And there's a clear contrast here, and it leads me how I would summarize then this final family rule on based on verses 31 and 32, is this. Be gracious, not combative. Be gracious, not combative. Now, how well do you follow this rule in your own home, in your own set of relationships? I think it's really best measured when you think about when something goes wrong. So you go to the cabinet or the shelf or whatever, and you want to find that item that you need to use for something, and it's not there. 
because somebody has taken it and borrowed it and used it and not put it back. Now, what's your response in a moment like that? Or when one of your kids just gets a little careless and clumsy and they drop that fine dinner plate on the floor and it shatters into a thousand pieces. Now, what's your response? Is there anger and wrath that comes out or is there kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness and self-control? Or what happens when the financial investment totally goes south and you lose a lot of money? Do you take that out on the family, on the kids? Do the children know, oh, I need to kind of avoid dad right now? Or when your teenager wrecks the car because of some poor judgment, how do you respond? With self-control and grace or with combative frustration and with anger? When that feud erupts in your extended family and people are kind of bickering and fighting, do you kind of get drawn into that or do you rise above it and be the role of a peacemaker? Basically, when something goes wrong, how well do you respond with grace? Or how much do you react with your own anger, your own bitterness, your own rage, malice? See, what's in view here is really our disposition amid trouble and adversity. When things go wrong, do you rear up and fight? Do you get angry and combative? Do you become that kind of person that people really don't want to be around? It's like, I got to get away from you for a minute. Or do you show patience and kindness and thus mirror to others the grace that God has shown to us in Christ? Obviously, we're called to do the latter because verse 40, 32 says, forgive one another just as God also forgave you. In Christ. And here then is some of the great hypocrisy that exists in our Christian homes. Where we build a family that we say is built upon Christ and the gospel. Where we relish in the freedom and the forgiveness that Jesus offers us. But then we fail to offer that same grace and forgiveness to one another. And we expect perfection or close to it from one another instead of showing abundant grace for our own perfections which is exactly the way that God relates to us and so if the gospel is true in your own lives then you ought to forgive as Christ has forgiven you you ought to show tenderness and be gentle and patient just as Christ has been gentle and patient with you you ought to show uh, kindness just as Christ has shown kindness to you your life ought to overflow with graciousness and self-control Bring abundant grace into your home. And your home will be richly blessed by it. Be gracious, not combative. Do that and your home will be a much more happy, joyful place. Your relationships will be much more reflective of God, what God wants them to be. So there you have it. Five rules for family conduct. Be honest, not deceptive. Be reconciling not resenting, be contributing, not taking, be edifying, not condescending, and be gracious, not combative. And so let me ask, what would an honest, reconciling, supportive, edifying, gracious home look like? Would it look like a home you'd want to be a part of? Look like a set of relationships, a family that you want to be associated with? It'd probably be a pretty good home probably would be a very incredible home. But these things are not easy, are they? This is a big struggle for us to try to cultivate this kind of culture, for us to try to bring these kind of things into our household and our marriage and our parenting and our relationships. 
And in order to do that, there's some things we have to do. We have to fight our own selfish tendencies, right? To constantly put off that old self, that old self that wants to be deceptive, that wants to be resentful, that wants to be selfish, that wants to be combative, to to get rid of that, to fight against that. That's one of the biggest challenges we have. Isn't it? Ourselves, changing ourselves. We also need to strive to communicate well, not, not burying down the things that we're feeling, the burdens that we have, the pressures that we're sensing, but talking about those things, working through those things, communicating about those things, forgiving each other of things, using words that build each other up and support and encourage and give hope and inspiration to each other. Communicating well. And also leading our homes well. See, parents, these kind of things don't happen naturally. Our natural default is going to gravitate towards the things that we shouldn't do rather than the things that we should do. And so, parents, maybe you need to spend some time talking and praying about how you can lead your family better in this way, how you can be, even in your own marriage, more gracious, more edifying, more supportive. See, if you want to change your home to more reflect these standards that we have here, It begins, really, first and foremost, with modeling it yourself. With changing it in yourself first. Not pointing the finger at somebody else and saying, hey, you need to be more gracious. Changing it in yourself. See, if you're a parent, your children will reflect the behaviors that they see you model in the home, right? So if they see a dad who is combative and aggressive, they're going to behave that way too. If they see a mom who is nagging and overly critical, they're going to take that on too. They're going to model your imperfections. But if they see Christ in you, if they see holiness and righteousness in you, if they see you living a life that is receptive, that is honest, that is reconciling, that is supportive and contributing, edifying in your words, that is just gracious, they're going to imitate that. And they will then be inadvertently imitating Christ as they imitate you. And that doesn't matter what age your kids are. It also means if you're a grandparent, it all applies to that as well. All of those who could be our children, no matter what their age or distance from us, will imitate us in some way, some fashion. And as a parent, you never stop modeling and demonstrating to your children or to your spouse the righteous life that God demands for you. And is that not the highest and most holy calling we have as parents and as members of a family? To do our part to lay before others these attributes and have them expressed in our life that they might likewise be inspired to do the same. And in that, we could rest and delight in the joy of a household that embraces these virtues and embraces this kind of culture that brings these things in. And in that, there is so much joy. There's so much freedom. There's so much delight. It's even such a foretaste of the eternal home we're going to have someday. But we want to work to try to achieve that here now, don't we? So doing that, it begins with you changing your own heart, changing your own behaviors, your own patterns of relating and communicating and talking, modeling righteousness so that those around you see you and feel inspired to do the same in themselves. Do that and your home will be a great token of joy and of glory to God.
as the gospel is so readily seen in that place.